What would be like a typical scenario of someone who doesn't need life insurance? Well, Warren Buffett is one example. For other people is, you know, let's say you're single and you have no kids. You have no one who's financially dependent upon you. What is your insurable need? And even let's say you have a married couple and they don't have any children and they each make a sizable enough income that would cover all their costs. They don't have a risk that they're trying to protect. Welcome to Personal Finance Cat, where I share my personal take on personal finance. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me today. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you. So I read your bio on the website. You are the creator of the Get Ready Method. Can you tell us about that and how it empowers people to take control of their finances? Well, it, it's with the old adage, you know, if you teach someone to fish, I, I mean, if you give someone a fish, you feed them for a day. If you teach someone to fish, you feed them for life. So it, it starts with learning eight healthy habits that put people in control, because I think that's what's missing from the financial conversation. Got it. And so the eight steps you said are part of the get ready method? Yeah. So, you know, for example, it starts with thinking about your goal first, rather than a financial service product is, you know, we often think about something like Bitcoin and like, hey, is Bitcoin a good investment or not? Instead of thinking about, well, I want to make sure I have enough money for financial independence. Is Bitcoin going to help me get to my goal? So it's flipping that around a little bit. Yeah, that makes total sense. Can you tell us how you usually help your clients or whoever you are trying to help, how you kind of take them through that, the eight steps that you mentioned? Yeah, so um, it's through, you know, uh, primarily education, videos, uh, speaking. And so I walk them through the habits to make sure they start to um, gather how to do it. You know, so part of it is talking about the importance of educating themselves about whatever they're purchasing. Uh, you know, for example, <clears throat> asking questions is like, you know, sometimes you go in and look at a financial service product and talk to somebody, but you're scared to ask questions about it because you feel like you should already know. Um, but, you know, the real question is, where could we possibly have learned something like about how an insurance policy works? Mm -hmm. You know, we graduate from college or we graduate from high school, we go into the workforce and all of a sudden you're expected to know all these things. Like, how does a savings account work? Well, where do we really learn that? So, you know, I try to encourage people to educate themselves and to ask a lot of questions. So that, that's the process. Yeah, yeah. Is that what inspired you to get into this industry? Like you said, we don't learn all that stuff at school. And somehow we have to learn because we have to deal with it. So can you talk about how that inspired you to create something that can help people? Yeah, so over the course of my career, I, I've been in a lot of different roles. I started off in insurance sales, and I quickly became a fee based insurance consultant. Uh, working predominantly with financial planners, trust officers, uh, litigation attorneys. And then I also spent some time uh, as a volunteer on the California Department of Insurance Curriculum Board. And what I started seeing was that all throughout the chain, people didn't know much about the insurance products. 
that went to the people who were selling it, the people who were buying it, the people who were regulating it, the people who were advising on it. And so it became clear that there was an education process and sometimes just a communication thing is instead of somebody acting with ill intent, it was oftentimes the people were just underinformed, And so they made a lot of assumptions. And so it became clear that, you know, when I wrote my first book that, you know, we had to take a look at education, but going beyond education, we had to help people put that education into effect. It was one thing to say, hey, here's what this type of financial service product is. You know, it's great, but it's static. So we have to help people figure out how to actually implement that change and to ask the right questions so they can get the right answers. So that's what it comes down to. Again, it's about being curious and asking the right questions. Gotcha. A couple of follow-up questions on what you just said. Insurance, I think by that you mean life insurance or do you cover when you were a salesperson for insurance, what kind of insurance products did you sell? Well, I only sold for a few years is uh, mm-hmm. until I became a fee-based consultant. So I consulted on life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, and annuities, which is also a myth. People think that annuities are an investment. They're actually an insurance contract. So mm-hmm. that's that's where I really started with that whole thing is that life insurance, for example, is an insurance policy. It's not an investment contract. Like there's that whole movement. I don't know if you or your um, listeners have heard, you know, about bank on yourself or, you know, use an insurance policy to solve every financial problem you've ever had. But it's still an insurance contract. And at the end of the day, you're paying insurance charges for it. So that's that's where I was going with that. Got it. I think there's a lot of debate about what insurance products, you know, people should get. I think it ties to what you were saying earlier, based on people's goals, it might be a different choice. So can you maybe talk on a high level, what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of different type of life insurance, you know, term versus whole life? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's actually pretty simple. If you start with yourself, instead of starting with a product and then evaluating whether that product's bad or good for you, is I think first is to ask yourself, you know, what risk am I trying to protect? I think that's a basic question, you know, whether you're looking at homeowners insurance, protecting your income with disability insurance, is that you think about, okay, what is my risk? Okay, well, do I have a risk of somebody who is financially dependent upon it, whether it's a partner, whether it's a child, whether it's a parent, you know, whatever. Okay, you, you have the risk. Then you decide how long you need to insure that risk for. So, you know, if it's to insure a mortgage, you know, then it's the length of the mortgage is the length of the policy, which means it's a term policy because your mortgage is not going to be in effect for the rest of your life. Um, so, you know, that's, that's matching the product to your goal and to what you actually need. Then you can get into some of the other discussions, but that right there answers the question of term versus whole life insurance for me is because you're not going to need whole life insurance. The other thing that I think is really important is the sales technique of encouraging people to buy life insurance before they need it. And I find that problematic is because some people are never going to have a need for life insurance. 
but yet if they buy a policy and they'll still pay for those insurance charges. And I think a good way to look at it is you couldn't buy auto insurance on a car you don't own that you might own someday, mm-hmm. but yet you buy life insurance on a risk you don't actually have yet. So I think that's a way to look at it. Oh, that's very interesting. I've, I don't think I've ever heard that. So when you say there are some people who would never need life insurance, what would be like a typical scenario of someone who doesn't need life insurance? Well, Warren Buffett is one example, but (laughs) most of us aren't Warren Buffett. So for other people is, you know, let's say um, you're single and you have no kids, you have no one who's financially dependent upon you. What is your insurable need? what risk are you actually trying to protect? Um, and even let's say you have a married couple or domestic partners and they don't have any children and they each make a sizable enough income that would cover all their costs. They don't have a risk that they're trying to protect because it would be just fine if they didn't have the other person's income. So I think, you know, it comes back to that as, you know, what, what risk am I actually trying to protect? And without thinking about all the things that the life insurance industry says about, you know, how, you know, life insurance is about saying, I love you to your partner or all these other things. It's really about, it's a financial product and it's a leverage tool. And to put it that way. Yeah, I love that. I think it's a very honest answer and Salespeople would never say that. I feel like no. <laughs> a lot of people don't agree with me on that, or I get a lot. Yeah, of but I think what you said makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I would agree with you. And then, on the flip side, though, what do you think would be a scenario where someone could really benefit from a whole life insurance? Well, I think you can benefit from a whole life insurance if you have a permanent need. Like um, if you have a special needs child who will be dependent upon you for the rest of your life. Um, Although I don't think whole life insurance is still the best answer because it's the highest cost form of insurance. However, with that said, if you are somebody who is risk averse, whole life insurance provides the best guarantees. So I think you need to go through that as well and ask yourself is, you know, what level of risk are you comfortable with? and then put that into your uh, insurance planning. And if you don't want any risk with your insurance policy, then whole life becomes the right answer. If you're willing to get a lower price policy and you're okay with taking on a low risk, you might take a guaranteed universal life policy. So I think that's the other thing is you have to look at what you're doing um, and what you're really, what problem you're trying to solve. That's great. One last question on the insurance uh, point. Of course. The, the infinite banking or something. I think that's also an insurance product. Yeah. I never fully understood it because to me, how much ever you put in is probably the maximum you can take out, right? But they have this infinite wording in there, which kind of throws me off. But then maybe there's also some tax advantage or something. Can you explain how that product works? Well, that, that would take a few hours oh, okay. uh, if you had a bottom line. You only yeah, have 20 so seconds. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> take as much as you uh, need. There's, <laughs> is there a countdown clock? Uh, there's the infinite banking concept, which is uh, one of them. There's Be Your Own Banker. And then there's a whole bunch of other names. Uh, the Leap Strategy. But essentially what it is is that you overfund 
policy and which means that you put in more money than the usual premium you would pay and the concept is is that you're borrowing your own money from the policy so you're being your own banker so instead of going to a bank for a loan you're going to your own life insurance policy for a loan however there's a few problems with the calculation is one you're still paying for the cost of insurance because it is an insurance policy so if you don't need the insurance that's an extra cost that you're taking on the cash does grow uh on a tax deferred basis usually on a life insurance policy it, every once in a while there are circumstances where the cash value on a life insurance policy can become subject to income tax but the other issue is that when you borrow the money on a whole life policy there's a problem because the cash value on a life insurance policy on a whole life policy is actually a reserve account on a policy which lowers the net amount at risk on the insurance policy so let's say you have a hundred thousand dollar policy you have a twenty thousand dollar cash value that means that there's eighty thousand dollars at risk to the insurance company and because the insurance company is charging for the amount at risk to them your costs go down as you get older and as your cash value accumulates but if you're taking out some of the reserve that impacts the cash value growth and how much the insurance company charges are and then the last point there is that the insurance company charges you interest on the loan that you take out so you take money out of an insurance policy and a whole life policy may have an eight percent interest charge on the loan so are you really taking out your own money if you have to pay loan interest on it so yeah so you pay the interest to the insurance company i thought it's paying to yourself uh, -uh you, you uh you pay to the insurance company oh wow so because you're taking money well so you're actually taking money from your reserve account mm -hmm. which means the insurance company is giving you the money so they have less money uh in the policy so they charge you for that is because when they calculate the premiums they calculate it on you know their the potential reserve account so it, it gets pretty complex the calculation but you know the bottom line is that you have to pay a loan interest and it goes to the insurance company and you do not recover that interest right i can see more and more why warren buffett wouldn't need these insurance products no. <laughs> that seem like a good deal when you break it down like yeah. that but no thank you i really appreciate the honesty because oh, um course. i just get so confused when i hear these sales pitches but something tells me that if i don't fully understand it i shouldn't just go with it but that's another long story anyway um so <laughs> i think you also received a lot of accolades for example there is this um thought leadership and education by think advisors luminaries you were recognized as the finalist for the class of 2022 of that competition or awards can you talk about your experience in that competition and what does thought leadership mean to you well to me thought leadership means sharing your expertise with the world is that we all know something about something so you know it's going out there and helping people understand something that they don't understand um, and i'm a believer that we should all share our knowledge that we can all grow together uh, by sharing our knowledge. And actually, I just want to walk back for just a second to something you said about yep. understanding something. 
because that's actually one of the get ready habits is, you know, if you don't understand something, walk away from it. Um, you know, that's a good, uh, you know, signal that your gut's telling you like, you know, maybe this isn't quite the right thing for me, you know, at this time until you can learn enough about it. But for me, that's thought leadership is just like we were talking about is giving people the facts, giving people information and letting them decide for themselves rather than the financial services industry does a very good job of telling people what to do. You need to do this. You need to save this much money. You need to have this great credit score. You need to do this, but they don't help people understand like, okay, why is that important to me? Why? How? And so that's that's what I try to achieve with thought leadership is helping people answer questions for themselves. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So it sounds like your program is to help people build that financial literacy and then they can make decisions for themselves. So how long does that program last usually? Well, you know, it's really, you know, it's either in the book or they can do, you know, I have a 52-week course. And the reason it's a 52-week course is that it teaches people to take one simple action each week so it becomes a habit you know so uh, each week they think about one financial action item like reviewing the beneficiaries on their retirement accounts and on their insurance policies or you know reviewing their banking you know we don't think about where we have our savings accounts very often or our checking accounts so are we going to the local ATM because it's the most convenient and paying a $4 ATM charge? Or have we moved to a bank where we don't have to have the ATM charge? And those little things can add up for people, but we don't think about it. So it's building up that habit about doing a little bit each year instead of, you know, going once a year is like, I have 50 things I need to do, take care of for my money. And you don't take care of it because it's just too overwhelming. So. I try to break it down and make it bite-sized for people so that they can build a habit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was thinking about something along how you were describing your program because I feel like a lot of times it seems very overwhelming for people to change their financial habits and do financial planning and so forth. So that is a great approach. Speaking of your book, you also received an award for that. I think it's the Excellence in Financial Literacy Education. How do you approach making these financial topics fun and accessible to your readers? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if it's ever fun. But I try to make it accessible by um, thinking about how people actually would think about it if they didn't really know anything. You know, so how do you learn something that's essentially a foreign language? So, you know, what I've been told in my superpower is, is being able to translate financial services for everyday people to start to understand. So that's essentially what I look to do is I look to translate concepts using words that we actually use every day if you and i had a conversation we wouldn't use all these fancy technical words we just have a conversation using everyday words and so that's that's the essence of what i try to do is think about okay well how can i make this understandable to somebody who doesn't know anything about it and the thing is is even within the financial services community people don't necessarily know 
things beyond their scope of expertise. And we tend to think even, you know, as a practitioner, like a CFP or a CPA, you know, that you should know something. So you don't want to admit to a client that you don't know something. So, you know, I'm also educating people in the industry to say, okay, well, here's how you can learn something to broaden your scope without having to say, oh, well, I don't really know that. And, you know, having to take that, you know, there's a lot of shame with money and a lot of judgment, even within the industry. So, you know, I'm trying to help people not feel any shame, not feel judged, you know, for not knowing anything. So that's, that's where I go with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And then you are also an advisor at Paperware and Dingo Technologies. Yeah. What kinds of uh, technologies or innovations, I guess, are under that group? And what do you think the technologies that are already available or will come out in the future that will make you very excited about? Oh, boy. Well, I think where I'm excited about technology is expanding the scope of education tools out there is, you know, for example, there's 36,000 CFPs, I think, in the world right now. That's not enough to serve well, I, I don't know how many adults are on the US, but there's 315 million people who live in the US. So let's say 50% of them are adults. 36,000 people cannot serve 150 million people. So there's a growing cottage industry of just random people giving out financial advice. And some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's helpful, some of it's not. Um, just like anything else is some people understand their limits of how much they know and they help people to that degree. And then there's other people who give information on everything just because that's how humans are. So where I think technology can help is to leverage the knowledge that's out there to help deliver it to people in the time they need it. So for example, like with paperwork is we help members of credit unions learn about financial skills at the time they need it. So if they're reviewing let's say their savings account, you know, presenting something with them about their savings account so they can learn about that. If they're thinking about a credit card, educating them on the different components of a credit card. So I think that's where financial education come in is it can augment the information that's already out there. I don't think that it's ever gonna completely replace it is because every situation and every person is unique um, I don't think AI is going to get to that point. I think AI is going to be more of a helper and more of a research tool for people rather than a counselor. Yeah, I was just, that's what I'm excited about. Right. I was just going to ask you what your thoughts are on AI. I feel like maybe some simple questions you can ask ChatGPT and maybe they can at least help you get started on where to look. But to your point, I think it's not going to especially take over the personal aspect of it. Since you mentioned CFP, can you talk a little bit more about that? What is a CFP and what are they allowed to do in terms of giving financial advice or just helping people on financial decisions? Mm -hmm. I can speak a little bit about it is um, CFPs are certified financial planners. And so they have to go through um, a long process to get the designation. So it's a recognized standard for financial planning in the United States. And, you know, there are CFPs around the world, but, you know, 
most of them are in the US and it consists of, um, I think they've expanded to six different components, including investing, insurance, um, and other pillars of creating a financial plan. Um, generally, most CFPs charge a fee rather than accepting a commission. However, and some people will take uh, offense at this, but if somebody is charging you a fee to manage your assets, let's say 1% of your portfolio, that's actually a commission because the more assets you, that you give them to manage, the higher the fee is going to be. So you have to take into account how advisors are compensated and what that actually means to you as a person. And, and it's not easy, um, but it's asking questions and thinking about it. You know, is it better to pay somebody a $2,000 a year fee to help you manage your finances? Or is it better to pay an asset under management? Or is it better to pay somebody who's making commission every now and then? There's not necessarily a right answer um, to that, but CFPs are the gold standard. Um, the ones I really like, and unfortunately there's not a lot of them, are Chartered Financial Analysts, CFAs, mm. and they have even more advanced training, but there's not that many of them. So mm -hmm. it's really finding people that you reflect with. The other problem with the CFP designation is that they're mostly older white males, um, and the country is not made of mostly older white males. And so a lot of people are getting their financial advice through different avenues because, you know, it's easier for us to get advice from people who have similar experiences and backgrounds and can talk to us in a way that reflects our culture, that reflects our experience and reflects our background and outlook. So, you know, that's, that's an important thing I think for people is to also consider that is when you're looking for somebody, you know, is this somebody that you can relate to, but is this somebody who's gonna understand? You know, um, you know, is, is um, your culture where your parents are going to live with you um, when they get older, or is your culture where parents are gonna go into a nursing facility? Um, you know, and those things are important, but if your advisor has a completely different worldview, there, it's gonna be really hard for them to give you advice so that's sort of an answer sort of not an answer but i hope that's helpful yeah yeah no that's great because um i was corrected one time about the fee-based compensation because i thought it was fixed fee but then i was told that it could be a percentage too even though they call that fee-based as well and then secondly i also agree with you that you know somebody told me that personal finance is 20% head knowledge and 80% behavior that's why the knowledge is just a small part of it the biggest chunk is actually how you behave. That's why this coaching process with a CFP is important in that respect as well. You mentioned CFA. I think I knew a couple of CFAs, but they work in the corporate setting. And I don't think they do this sort of uh, financial coaching or individual financial advisory. Why do you think CFA is very critical in providing financial advice? because they have a high degree okay so maybe and maybe i should say for somebody who thinks like me is <laughs> a cfa is critical is i have a cfa who i use for investment advice is because i'm a very technical numbers person 
-hmm. So, you know, I want to go through all the numbers. I want somebody who really understands numbers. So I should say a CFA is a right choice if you're somebody who kind of nerds out on numbers and really you know, wants to spreadsheet out everything, you know, because they have the most knowledge about doing that. But actually, you know, there's other things out there. There's financial therapists who can provide some advice. Like I have a colleague, I, I've been giving him a shout out a lot, Rakeem Sabri, who talks a lot about financial trauma, especially mm. in black communities. And so, you know, that's a whole different thing is going to somebody who understands, you know, what it's like to be a black person growing up and trying to get a loan and the different things that they face or that black people take out a higher amount of college loans than white people, you know, is like, that's, those are big differences that are going to impact how you make financial decisions. Um, you know, Latinos feel left out by the traditional uh, financial services. So a lot of them go to um, financial coaches. So because they can get advice that reflects their culture and how they look at the world. So I think, you know, financial coaches definitely don't discount financial coaches. Uh, in the process, just ask some questions and see what kind of knowledge they have and if you're comfortable with how they talk to you and how and if they respect you. I think that's the other huge thing is when you're dealing with a member of the financial services community, you want to work with somebody who respects you as a person and doesn't condescend to you or judge you. Yeah, actually, that's another great point. I want to go in more depth. I feel like the cultural differences definitely are pretty pronounced in this area. Coming from my culture, I feel like we almost have the other extreme as a problem because I feel like there was mm -hmm. too much focus. There's a stand-up comedian, Ronnie Chang, or Ronnie Chang. Um, he makes a lot I of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so true, you know, what he said. I think there's like one um, bit about becoming a doctor is very common in the Asian culture, but helping people is at the bottom of the list if it's even on the list that's really extreme but i don't think that's necessarily completely true but i think what he's trying to say is that when people from our culture make decision financial consideration is very big that's why a lot of people go into the quote-unquote good careers or traditionally good careers like doctors engineers etc for me i feel like if i want to seek financial advice I would appreciate someone who can understand my culture, right? To your point, do you think there should be more of a diversity in this industry? And do you think there's currently probably not sufficient diversity yet? What's, what are your thoughts on that? 100%. <laughs> so if we look at the population in general, I think what 52% of the American population are women. 30% of CFPs are women. Mm -hmm. That's a mismatch. Um, I have a friend, uh, Kathy Balasek, who teaches grief literacy uh, for financial advisors and helps widows. She's, she's a board member with a group called the Modern Widows Club. And their research shows that somewhere around 80% of women will leave their current financial advisor, whether they're a CFP or not, um, when their husband dies. Mm. And the reason being is very simple. Those advisors can't communicate or don't communicate to the widow. And, you know, either they've ignored the woman in the meetings all through life, or they just, you know, 
don't understand um, what the woman is looking for. And so I think that's part of it as, as well as when we look at, you know, um, the amount of black financial advisors, and I don't have those current statistics, but it's small. Mm-hmm. And it's much less than the black population of all, or Asians, mm-hmm. for example. There are quite a few Asian CFPs, but there's definitely not the same number. And, you know, that goes for Latinx, that goes for LGBTQ, uh, that goes for disabled versus able-bodied people. And we don't even talk about able-bodied people versus disabled people. And that's that's sensitive to me because my son has type 1 diabetes. So his needs are different than somebody who doesn't have a permanent disability. Mm-hmm. So I think those are all things that need to be taken into account. Yeah, that's great. And I also noticed on your bio that you contribute to Forbes Advisor and um, you're an expert content reviewer for Nerd Wallet. How do you stay informed about the ever-evolving world of finance? Because usually I think those um, articles are pretty cutting edge or at least like very popular trendy topics that they're covering. So what do you do to sort of stay informed about new trends and such? For me... I love reading, so I read, Um, but that's how I absorb information. So there's podcasts you can listen to, you know, there's videos that you can watch, there's conferences. I'm not a conference person, I hate going to conferences. But, you know, if you're a conference person and you love that, you know, there's some great conferences that you can go to. So there's all kinds of educational materials that are open to everyone. Anybody can subscribe to the newsletters I subscribe to, but that's that's how you keep track of the new information. Um, and then you talk to people. I think you have to regularly communicate with people in the field that you're interested in and learn what's going on. Um, and LinkedIn is a great place to do that professionally, to follow professional topics, see what other people are talking about, jump into conversations, and actually reach out and communicate with people you know and with zoom or google meet it's so easy to say hey can we just catch up for a quick get to know you call and then you learn something mm-hmm. you know so it's it's a, you know so i think the bottom line is to keep learning yeah you never know everything for sure and speaking of podcasts you also have a podcast right called um the get ready money podcast what are some of the key topics that you usually cover Well, so the podcast is dedicated to people who are changing the way we think about money. So I try to have a very diverse range of guests on because we each look at things so differently. Um, But, you know, I have a series of what I call the get ready questions and what, you know, uh, they range in, you know, like, what is one money myth you're trying to break? Uh, What is one habit that people can do? Um, You know, if you could go back in a time and time what would you tell your younger self what do you wish you knew at a younger age and it's fascinating although the one answer i get a lot is you know what's the one thing that you wish people knew Mm. half the time it's compounding interest Ah. start saving early i if i went through the podcast and tallied it up i would say probably 50 percent of my guests will say some variation of compound interest so that's what i try to discuss yeah it is isn't it Dub like the eighth wonder of the world or something. Yeah, that, I think that's what Einstein said. Is it's the eighth wonder of the world? Yeah, yeah. 
But what about you? What is the one thing that you wish that people would know about money? I think, well, one is that it's personal, mm -hmm. but I think the one tip that I have for people is to be curious, ask questions, don't take things at face value. So if you happen to watch a video on TikTok about NFTs, maybe ask some questions, you know, is we all know what's happened with NFTs. And so I'm picking on them because it's a pretty obvious example, but, but three years ago, they were the hottest thing ever. But if you think about it is what do they actually accomplish? You know, uh, you know, the other thing is to think about value. And I think that's the easy way that you could help something like NFT were going to last or not. Was there any inherent value? If you own stock in a company, that's a tangible value. If you own a home, if you're into, if you're a real estate investor, you own property, you have something tangible that's going to have permanent value if you have something like bitcoin or nft you know bitcoin is super volatile and i think the jury's still out on whether it's going to be good long term or not but nfts there's only value as long as somebody else is willing to buy it and as long and if you don't know if there's going to be a market for whatever you hold it's not a good investment so i think that's the rules you know for people to be curious ask questions challenge others you know if somebody's trying to convince you of something challenge them on it see if they really you know can back up the argument so yeah be curious that's great advice curiosity isn't it important for everything in life 100 <laughs> yeah financial wellness is now probably a topic of growing importance especially considering the potential recession what are some of the practical advice that you have for people to be able to build that financial wellness in order to be ready for the recession or what have you that's coming? Well, I think if you build healthy habits, that will give you the confidence that you need to not panic. So that's the first thing I'd say is, you know, when you read all these things is to take a deep breath and to not panic then once you've done that is think about your plan is anything happening in the world is it going to impact your plan so let's take a look at you know one of the events you know any of the events that are going on currently are they going to have an impact on your investment plan if there's a war in the middle east is that going to impact your mutual funds maybe a little bit but over 10 years, is it going to have an impact on the mutual funds you own in your 401k? Probably not. Is it going to impact your insurance policy? Probably not. Is it going to impact your estate planning? Probably not. So, you know, to, did you have your plan? But then you think about the personal part. Personal finance is personal. How is it going to impact me? Is it going to impact my goals? If it's going to impact my goals, how is it going to impact my goals? And is that enough for me to make a move instead of saying, shoot, I need to sell all my stock because the market's going down. Well, you know, over any 10 year rolling period, the market tends to go up. So, you know, you have to think about it. Well, if I'm getting out next year, maybe I need to sell some stock. But if you are 30 years old and you're saving money for financial independence at 60, that's a long horizon. So, you know, that's, that's my advice for people is to not panic, 
go back to your plan, take a deep breath, and be curious. Go back to asking questions about what impact it will actually have for you. That's great. So Tony, what about the fact that a lot of companies are trying to lay off their workers because the economy is kind of visibly being impacted by high interest rate and just overall uh, macroeconomic environment? So for those people who might have the possibility of losing their jobs, how can they prepare for that? Well, I, I think uh, having a reserve fund, um, you know, some people call it an emergency fund. I prefer uh, the name safety net fund. It accomplishes the same thing. It's your safety net. If you have a negative um, financial event, such as losing your job, um, you know, to have some resources ready is then maybe you do want to move some of your investments. If you have investments that you can move to cash or to cash like securities, maybe like, okay, and this is not investment advice because I am not an investment advisor, but to something, you know, like treasury bonds or something that is very liquid that you can get to, but is to start thinking about, you know, is it possible? And even if you're at one of those companies, you know, are you in a position where you might actually get laid off? You know, what is the likelihood? Um, you know, I mean, anybody can get laid off at any company. So there's always a chance um, but to really, you know, think about it and, you know, you can't worry too much about something before it happens. Now, if your company itself has announced that there are going to be layoffs, yeah, then you want to start kicking into your emergency plan, thinking about what your resources are, um, taking proactive steps. I mean, if you haven't set up a safety net fund, you're not going to be able to do that in two weeks. So, you know, at that point, do you have other resources? Like I mentioned, you might be able to put it into cash. Are, is there a loan you can take out, you know, at a low interest rate? Um, don't borrow from your retirement plan uh, because you have to pay back a 401k loan within 60 days, you know, and you may not be able to find a new job within 60 days. So think about, you have a plan uh, for what will happen in that eventuality. Um, I, I think anytime you have a backup plan, I used to do um, first aid training and uh, wilderness rescue training. And you always had a plan for every eventuality, you know, like, so what happens if you lose communications? What happens if you can't get back to your base? You know, whatever that is, is you have a plan for the eventuality. And then when something happens, you've already got a plan or you've already thought about it. You know, there's always going to be something that goes wrong or doesn't work out, but, you know, you at least can get started. So that's what I would recommend to people is, you know, to start thinking about what they would do if it happens instead of waiting for it to happen and then panicking. Great advice. What are your goals for your own company or program? What's your kind of long-term goal for how this will evolve? Well, you know, my long-term goal is to help people change the way they think about money and to have an impact. Um, so it's connecting with other people like yourself who have similar missions mm -hmm. to help people put a different perspective on it. Although I was expecting to be interviewed by a cat. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> That's my... It would have been my first time interviewed by a cat. <laughs> so, yeah. um, Cats do think differently about things, but, you know, all kidding aside is, you know, to help people take control for themselves because I've seen so many cases of financial abuse where 
people were taking advantage of is because they either didn't know the right questions to ask, they didn't have the, you know, the ability to get knowledge, they didn't spot the red flags uh, in the processes. Usually whenever there's fraud or other bad practices, there are some red flags. But if you don't even know what those red flags are, because you don't know, you don't have good financial habits, you don't know the questions to ask, is you you could be a victim of financial fraud. So, you know, part of that is what drives me is seeing all the bad things that have happened and, want, and wanting to help people avoid those bad things. Yeah, that's awesome. Why do you think financial literacy is not taught at school? Maybe it's changing a little bit. I can see even from my kids, normal education, I think they try to build in a little bit in their curriculum, but it's not, it's not sufficient in my mind. Why do you think that is the case? I think the case is that most people themselves are not financially literate. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to put it into effect. Well, one thing I know with our local school, I was on the board of our local school, uh, mini district, and, you know, we were looking at financial literacy programs, but at the end of the day, the school didn't have money to pay for a financial literacy program. So they were using a program, we ended up using a program that was free. Mm -hmm. And it's okay, but it's a free program. So I think it's the value we place as a society on financial literacy. I think it's that the adults oftentimes are not financially literate. You have the parents who are not always financially literate. You have the teachers who are not financially literate. You have the school staff and administration who are not financially literate. And it's not a priority is, you know, um, schools have just an amazing amount of stuff that they have to have as part of their core curriculum. And a lot of it, you know, we won't get into school curriculum because that's a whole other very controversial conversation that I will avoid, but that it's, you know, financial literacy has not become an accepted part of the core curriculum. Um, I do know some people, um, you know, shout out to my friend Derek Wesley at Seedling, who is, he's a principal now, I think, of his school, but he also created a financial literacy app but it's for teachers by teachers. And so that's his concept is that teachers can relate to actually how financial literacy has to be taught in the classroom because they've been there and done it instead of a company coming in and saying, well, here's how you can get financial literacy in the classroom. You know, and historically um, it was provided by like banks, you know, big banks, credit unions, whatever, they would provide the credit or visa or MasterCard, they provide the programs for the schools, but they were sort of biased towards those financial entities and they weren't, you know, they, they weren't taught by teachers. It's like we talked about communicating with people from different cultures, is teachers have a certain way of doing it. Classrooms have a certain way, you know, 10 year olds have to be taught information in a certain way because their attention span is only so long. And you can't expect them to sit through a 20 minute video without fidgeting and, you know, being 10 year olds, they're just 10 year olds. And so I think that's, that's what I see the challenges are. Yeah. Do you think the fact that financial topics and money are taboo in this culture, I feel like played a role in this as well? Oh, I think a hundred percent. I think that, you know, how we feel about money personally, if we feel ashamed about money, 
if we don't have a solid relationship with money and feel good about it. So let's say you're somebody who is stressed out by money. You know, you don't really want to think about it. So you're not going to take the time to talk to your kids about it because you already feel bad about it. Or what your kids are going to absorb at home are negative emotions. Let's say your parents argue about money all the time. How are you going to feel about money? Are you going to be open to learning about it at school when you see like, oh boy, mom and dad are fighting about money again. Money's bad. Mm -hmm. They don't argue about math. You know, math is okay. They're not arguing about math, but they argue about money. And so I think that's that's a big part of it. And the parents don't want to talk about it uh, because they may not know um, about it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of that because so much of it is what's what happens in the home. But then you have the teachers. And the teachers don't know much about money either. And they have their own biases and built-in money stories and everything else and values. And so they may teach it in a certain way because of their perspective. So I think that's a big part of it is being comfortable with money helps you talk with others about money. Yeah. And the other challenge I saw is that so my son, my older one, is about eight and he watches a lot of YouTube. And then there are some YouTubers that focus on, how do I say this? (laughs) Just, uh, you know, buying these very expensive things and uh, Mm -hmm. showcasing very expensive houses. I feel like the challenge for my son and uh, indirectly to me is that other extreme, right, which is kind of the, the exhibiting of a great amount of wealth. Also, I think distorts people's view, especially younger people or children on what's important and how money normally works. So do you have any ideas of how to communicate to younger people or children? Money is important. It's a tool, but you shouldn't be so obsessed with money either. Yeah, 100%. But I think, again, uh, part of it is modeling by parents. Mm-hmm. You know, are you out there buying a new car every couple of years? Does your child see you coming home with a new car, um, a luxury car, or do they see you driving an older car? And well, yeah, not people are not buying it. a new car, and that's that's why he's complaining. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 exactly. <laughs> but it is setting a lesson. You know, kids, yeah, I mean, as you know, as a parent, kids absorb a lot more than you think they're learning. He may be complaining about it, but in the back of his mind, he's learning that there's a value to it, that you as a parent are modeling what should be done in terms of buying a new car versus making do with the older car. And I think then it's explaining why you made that decision. I think that's the other thing is people don't talk to their kids about why they made a decision. I encourage one of the uh, weeks in my calendar is to have a family meeting where you sit down with your kids and you talk to them about like, okay, you know, this year we can go on vacation to Disneyland or, you know, you can get braces, you know, whatever those trade-offs are going to be, or this year, does everybody agree we want a new car? Well, if we get a new car, well, then we're not going to be able to go to Europe this summer or whatever the trade-off is. And then I think you have to have those family meetings where you talk to the kids about how the family business is operating. Is that's the way they're going to learn is like, okay, why are my parents making this decision? Why aren't we living in a fancier house? Why can't I have a new Xbox? 
you know, what's going on here. And I think that's the thing is we undervalue how much kids can understand at a very young age. And there are some great books um, out there. Um, you know, The Four Money Bears is a great book um, for kids. Um, there's also Sammy Rabbit at sammyrabbit.com who's got a money free money school for kids. So mm -hmm. there are some really good resources, but I think it's just talking to your kids. But most of us won't even talk to our significant other about money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, you know, peeling that away that we have to get comfortable talking about money. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, because I, I do realize that when I talk to my son and my children in general, the other one is probably a little bit too young to understand fully. They are more receptive. They will concede because they understand where we're coming from. What's the rationale? So that's definitely great advice. That's a good segue for my next question, which is what are some of the book recommendations you have either for money or for life in general? Well, of course, any of my books are the best books. <laughs> you can buy. <laughs> so uh, some of my favorite books, um, they're Smart Brevity, uh, which is about communication. Um, I think it's really important for us to all be conscious of making our uh, communication concise. Um, I think the best book you can buy on investing is The Intelligent Investor. Uh, which was written a long time ago um, by Benjamin Graham. But it's still, if you talk to anybody in the investment world, it's still the best book. And the fellow who wrote the book, Benjamin Graham, was a mentor for none other than Warren Buffett. So those are two books that I highly recommend for people. Okay, great. Yeah, Intelligent Investor, I read it. It's definitely not the way that I think people write books anymore, but some of the principles are very, very useful even to today is how you think about investing. He was the one basically that created this title, security analyst. Before him, people didn't analyze stocks. They thought stocks were more like a lottery, but he kind of put mm -hmm. a framework on it. And then my last question for you is where can people find more about you? Um, at my website, TonyStewart.com, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I sort of pop in on Instagram, um, not super steady on Instagram, but, you know, also I have a YouTube channel. Uh, so, you know, but the best way is, you know, on LinkedIn or through my website. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tony. This has been a wonderful discussion. I really learned a lot. Thank you for being so honest and transparent. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's been yeah, a pleasure. Of course.